Psalm 127 this morning. Psalm 127. A short psalm, just five verses, but a very powerful one. Appreciate uh, Mike and Brian leading in worship last Sunday, and uh, I told them that since they've done it once, now, of course, they can be called upon at any time. <laughs> and they've crossed a line now, and I appreciate, appreciate them being involved very much. And, uh, and I hope that you uh, were encouraged and challenged by Brent's Brent Turner's message last week. Hear the word of God. Psalm 127, a song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless our meditation upon this word. And may the Holy Spirit give us insight and understanding, enabling us to apply it in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The song is, uh, song is appropriate, psalm is, uh, and a song of ascents. It is also called a pilgrim song, because a song of ascents was uh, one which the Jews would sing as they went up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem being up on a mountain, up on a hill. And as they traveled uh, to the feast in order to worship in the temple, they would sing this and other psalms. And it was said to be written by Solomon, probably uh, in the time or associated with the building of the temple by Solomon. Now some have translated that introduction as written for Solomon. In that case, perhaps David wrote the psalm to encourage his son in this task of building the temple. Either way, Solomon himself was challenged by by these words, the word of God here. He was challenged to build the temple. He had a house to build, God's temple. He also had a city to watch. He was responsible for Jerusalem. And he had a family to build. He was to raise up a seed to God. He was in the direct line of Uh, the Messiah to come. And for all these things, Solomon would need to look to God and depend upon him alone for guidance. But this psalm was not written for Solomon only. It was written for all believers. It was written even for us today to encourage us, to challenge us, to build our lives on God. Rather, to have him build our lives, to be built by God. For unless the Lord builds the house, our labor is in vain if we build. In these first two verses, the psalmist, you see, is laying down some general principles for us. And we're going to look at that now in in, in my introduction before we get on to the issue of family. But 
They apply to really anything we do in life, whatever it is you're trying to do uh, in your life, whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. If God is not in it, then what you're doing is in vain. And that word vain simply means empty. It means worthless. It means what you're doing is of no value if, you're, if God is not in it. And the word vain is, <clears throat> the root meaning of that word is, is this. It is devastation, destruction, or waste. And we find the New Testament teaches this, that anything we do, all the works that we do, if those works are not done in and by and to the glory of Jesus Christ, then they are, in the end, going to be destroyed. They will be burned up. They will be devastated. There will be nothing left. We find this in uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Paul declares, first of all, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. If your life is not founded upon Jesus Christ, you yourself will be destroyed in hell forever, even though you will still have consciousness. In hell you will be destroyed there as 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 says. And Paul goes on to teach in 1 Corinthians 3 that each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work uh, that he has done is uh, built on, it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. So God calls us to examine our lives, examine your life. Ask yourself, are you building your life on Christ? Are you doing everything as unto Him in your life? If you are not, uh, then it is going to go up in smoke. And as the psalmist says, the Lord must be at work in what you are doing in you or else it will be destroyed in the end. So God's calling us to live our lives in light of eternity, eternal thinking. And if your life's not being built by God, you're throwing it away. What is it you're trying to do with your life? Uh, are you going off to college to get an education and you have plans and dreams? If you do not put the Lord first uh, in your plans for the future, then you're laboring in vain. Are you seeking to have a successful business? Or are you simply seeking to develop good health? Or whatever it is that you're doing, it will be worthless unless God is at work in you. Verse 2 says, It's vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, and to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. And Craig, I don't think that means it's vain for you to go to work in the middle of the night, as God has called you to at this moment. But what, what he's saying is that God calls us to work hard, but not to be workaholics, not to worship our work and the money that we can make from it. He calls us to work diligently, but not anxiously, uh, worrying about things. You know, why would a person rise up early and go to bed late? You know, Benjamin Franklin said, early to bed, early to rise. You'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But here's one who gets up early, but also stays up late. They're burning the candle at both ends. Why would they do that? Because they think that they need more money. They need to uh, get ahead. And if they can get ahead and get a little extra, then they'll have peace. But that's not the way we get God's peace. Others work hard. They sleep 
can't sleep at night. They're not working at night, but they can't sleep at night worrying about the work or paying the bills and so forth. But think about our Lord Jesus. Think about all he had on him every day. uh, Throngs of people coming around him, asking for things, healing and, and wearying himself from morning until night. And yet we find, perhaps because he was so exhausted, but I think it was rather because he had the peace of his father in his, in his soul, is that even in the midst of a ship that was being tossed around on, on the Sea of Galilee, we find him sleeping soundly, at rest, at peace, not worrying about a thing. He knew he was in his father's hands. He knew uh, that there was nothing to worry about. And if we were more like Jesus, we too would rest. We too would be carefree. Now, Jesus had a perfect faith, of course. Uh, He trusted in in God his Father completely. There was nothing missing or lacking in his faith. He didn't worry about anything. And so if you and I are worried, we've been out of shape about our work or or home or, or anything in life, then probably... Our faith, your faith needs perfecting, okay? And how does God perfect the faith? Well, first of all, He tests it. He tries it. He shows us uh, our weakness in faith, and, and He does that in order to purify it and strengthen it. So don't be discouraged when you realize and, and, and you think, well, you know, uh, did somebody tell Mark about my life this week because I've been anxious, I've been worried, and I haven't been able to sleep at night, and that sort of thing. No, I don't know what your life's been like this week. But I do know that you should not be discouraged because of your weak faith, but realize that God's working on you. And turn to Him and ask Him to strengthen that faith and perfect it. Keep praying that God will perfect the faith until you're able to rest completely in Him, no matter what. Now, this psalm mentions another area of life that we tend to worry about. Uh, particularly these days, and that is our safety, our personal safety. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And uh, for the first time, we, since 9-11, we're on red alert in terms of flights coming in from Great Britain. And uh, we had that recent discovery of the terrorist plot to blow up all these planes. And and this is not something to take lightly, obviously. And, and while I was on vacation in Washington, D.C., you know, you, you just, everywhere you look, there are armed guards, submachine guns in hand. But unless the Lord protects our nation, uh, those guards and all other efforts that we put forth are in vain uh, to stop them. And, you know, and, and, of course, in my prayer, I mentioned that we should be thankful for those in Great Britain who discover these uh, plots. And, and when I hear on the news, you know, the same kind of thing, but, but there's never any mention of God and giving thanks to God for our protection. We, we, we're owing it, giving credit to our ingenuity and, and our diligence and so forth, but somebody needs to look, look to the God. Somebody needs to give thanks to God. And it should be us at least... And uh, perhaps if, if others hear us and, 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 you know, giving thanks to the Lord, that it might become contagious. Because the truth is, God alone uh, provides safety for us. And the bottom line is that whatever we undertake, unless we do it to the Lord, unless we do it for His glory, by His strength and by His wisdom, it, it, 
it's going to amount to nothing. And that's especially true as we seek to build a family, to build families and raise children. Think about this. If God does not build your marriage, you'd be better off unmarried, single. If God doesn't build your family, you'd be better off with no children. If God doesn't build your own your life through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, you'd be better off if you'd never been born. Now, if you're here today and you don't know the Lord, if you haven't humbled yourself to receive Him and trust in Him alone as Savior and Lord, then today is the day of salvation. Today, now is the time to turn to Christ truly. And if you are saved, you need to remember that your calling is to live for God's glory in everything you do. And that God calls you to be involved in building His church, building His kingdom on earth. You know, the Lord Jesus came to build a house too, like Solomon before Him, and like David before Him. He came to build a house. He says, I will build my church, my house. The church is God's household, the Bible says. And He is, Lord Jesus, is the head of the household. He is the true builder of the church. But the interesting thing is that the Bible says we are fellow workers with God in building His church. And that's an amazing privilege, but it's a great responsibility. How do we build God's house? We don't build it with brick and mortar or stucco as in our church building. We build the church with people, with families. That's how the church is built. You've all heard the saying, as goes the family, so goes the church. And then we might say, as goes the church, so goes the nation. But the Puritan Richard Baxter said, a holy, well-governed family is the preparative to a holy and well-governed church. He said, if masters of families did their parts and sent such polished materials, that's kids, their families, and sent such polished materials to the churches as they ought to, the work and life of the pastors of the church would be unspeakably more easy and delightful. And I know from Richard Baxter's writings that he went from house to house catechizing families and children, probably because the fathers weren't really doing it. Uh, and, and I've read his book, The Reformed Pastor, and I think there's no way I could do all that Richard Baxter did. But he wouldn't have had to do all that if fathers had taken their job seriously. And he went on to say that in many of the churches of his day that the pastors could not uh, get around to preaching the deeper things, the meat of the word, because they were always having to concentrate on milk because fathers didn't teach their children at home. And so in our church, I call you men, especially fathers, husbands, teach your wives, teach your children, lead them in a serious uh, pursuit of the word of God and study that word. And then when we come together as a church, uh, God's uh, richness and blessing will be upon us. So then how do we build a family for God so that He Himself is building uh, that family and, and, and ultimately the church? Well, there are three principles to note from these last three verses. That was a long introduction. The, the points are not as long as the introduction. But how do we build our homes on the Lord? First of all, we need to have the conviction that children are a gift from God, a heritage from the Lord, and that the fruit of the womb is His reward, His blessing. 
So children are a gift from God. The ability to conceive and give birth to a unique human being made in the image of God is not merely the logical outcome of biological processes. It's the Lord alone who opens and closes the womb. All throughout the Bible you hear such phrases as the Lord opened her womb and she conceived or the Lord had closed her womb. Now, God's plan and God's purpose is perfect for each one of us. And there are a number of uh, uh, families in our church who uh, have not been able to have children or only been able to have one child or, or, and, and so forth. And, and this is God's perfect plan for these families. He works, of course, through physical means, doesn't he? Uh, you know, the old joke, you know, and, and I've probably heard it, you know, well, don't you know what causes that, right? Well, of course, it's the Lord. The Lord gives children. But, yes, it doesn't deny the physical, biological means and that God uses. But He's ultimately in control of the outcome. I'm going to hear a, a number of quotes today from, from old dead theologians. But here's another one from John Calvin. He says, The meaning then is this, that children are not the fruit of chance, but that God, as it seems good to Him, distributes to every man His share of them, of children. And so... When our children were young, we used to tell them, God put you in this family. This is where God wanted you to be, in this family. And we, that's the way we need to look at it. Now, children are not always seen, though, as a gift from God today, are they? No, they're not. They're often seen as a hindrance to a fulfilled life. When we were visiting Hannah on uh, her farm that she worked on, and there's four or five other interns, mostly girls who are working uh, on the farm. They live in a house together, and, and one of the girls has put up a little bulletin board with pictures of all the interns, and, 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 and they each get to write something about themselves on, on the thing. And one of the girls, uh, who was not there any longer, but her picture was still up there, and, and, and it says uh, you know, a few things that she was interested in, and one thing she says, you know, that never to have any children want any children. Even if she was able, she did not want to have children. Don't know why she said that. She wasn't there to talk to you about that. But children are seen as something that's in the way. They, and they're certainly being thrown away in our culture today by, uh, by abuse, by neglect, and through abortion. Even in the church, we don't always have the right view of children. And we have to admit uh, that we do complain. We complain to each other about our children, and we think that, and we look at them sometimes as a burden. Now, why do we do that? Because sometimes they are a burden. They truly are at times a burden. Children are gifts from God, but they come into the world as sinners bent on going their own way. And we are to command them to go God's way. The Bible says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You say, what's wrong with my child? The same thing that's wrong with every other child that's in this world. Foolishness is bound up in his or her little heart. But children have a responsibility before God. God holds them accountable to honor their parents. And so, children, God wants you to make the job of your parents a joy and not a burden. But if a child brings grief because of bad behavior, we need to also place some responsibility on parents, don't we? Here's a quote in your bulletin by Thomas Manton, another old Puritan writer. This was an introduction to the 
Westminster Confession that he wrote. And he said, wherever you go, you'll hear men crying out of bad children and bad servants, whereas indeed the source of the mischief must be sought a little higher. It is bad parents and bad masters that make bad children and bad servants. Now, children are a gift of God, but they require a lot of work, a lot of self-sacrifice, a lot of effort, a lot of prayer, a lot of the grace of God. And, and we do have an enemy. We have an enemy, the devil, who seeks to devour our children to lead them to hell. And their own sinful nature will fight against you and your efforts as you seek to raise them for the Lord. But by God's grace, as they are tender plants, uh, and if we nourish them properly, and God's grace is involved, then they will grow and they will bear fruit to the Lord. And this is an encouragement to us. And this leads to the second principle taught in this psalm about our children. That is, the children are mighty weapons in, the, uh, in our hands to be used for God, like arrows in the hands of a warrior. So are children of one's youth. Now, a stick, uh, by nature, is not an arrow. A, a piece of wood, a tree, is not an arrow. It has to be made into one. It has to be uh, cut. It has to be sanded. It has to be smoothed out and straightened so that it will be useful to the archer. And uh, it's interesting that um, my new son-in-law, Joe, is, he makes his own arrows. And it's neat to see the process that he goes out and cuts certain pieces of wood. And, 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 he, and he works with them. Even applies heat to them and, and, and pressure and, and so forth, and he, and, he, and he gets them to where eventually they're almost perfect. They're straight enough to shoot and actually shoot and go out and kill a deer. And, and that's something he's trying to teach uh, our own children to do, to make these arrows. But children like uh, branches and pieces of wood by nature are sinful and crooked, and, and, and it's our responsibility to, to apply the pressure, to apply the heat, to teach, to train, to straighten, to discipline, and to use the word with dependence upon God, that their lives might be straight and shoot for the target. You see, our children, in, in part, are what we make them, and like arrows, they go the way that we aim them. Where are we aiming our children? Consider for a moment what arrows are for, or at least in this context, in the psalm, they were uh, arrows are meant Back then, they were meant primarily for war. Verse 4 says they were for use by a warrior. And so while we are in this world, we need to remember that we are in a spiritual war. We're in the midst of spiritual battle, light and darkness between God and Satan. And so when godly parents raise godly children, then the kingdom of darkness is dealt a powerful blow. Henry Smith lived about 400 years ago. He says, Well doth David call children arrows, for if they be well bred, they shoot at their parents' enemies. And if they be evil bred, they shoot at their parents. How true that is. But after our children have grown up and we send them out into the world, then we've done our work. Uh, it's a little late then to, to really bend them. Well, we certainly still hope to have some influence, but... What, what I'm trying to get at is we must mold them now while they are young, while they are soft and pliable, and then when they leave home, they will not fail to hit the mark and defeat the enemy. And what does Scripture say? Proverbs 22, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not turn from it. Aim them, straighten them, teach them now, and they will shoot and hit the target. 
when they are older. How seriously do we take this training of children in the army of God? How seriously do we take this as an issue of warfare? Often, I'm able to find a multitude of excuses uh, for not taking the time to train uh, my children as I ought to. And it's very easy, very easy to let children grow up like weeds and just let them grow. They don't grow straight when we just let them go their own way. And there is no excuse, of course, and of course, in the sight of God for our negligence in this area. So if we're diligent to teach and train our children for the Lord, it provides a hedge of spiritual protection for ourselves against the enemy. Psalm 8 and verse 2 says this. It says, From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe in the agenda and the avenger. You see, when we teach our children about Christ, they learn about Him. They begin to praise Him in their lives. The avenger, the enemy, is silenced. Are you teaching your children? And I've asked this so many times of you in this church, and, and I hope that you're not tired of hearing it, but I want to encourage each father here today to be teaching studying the scriptures, first of all, and sound doctrine in order to be able to teach your children and your wives. And I want to encourage fathers here today to do three things. Three things I want to challenge you to do. Read the Bible daily on your own. Read it through, all the way through in a year. If you've never done so, be committed to reading and mastering the contents of the Bible as much as possible. Second, begin a study of sound doctrine. Use the confession of faith, shorter catechism, whatever you want to use, wherever you can learn sound doctrine because that's foundational. And then thirdly, establish a daily time or twice daily, whatever you can do, but at least daily family worship in your home and keep it up. Keep it up. If you have started doing it and maybe you've gotten slack, there are times when that happens, but don't ever let it go get back and pursue it and there are lots of resources of course uh, to help you your elders and I and myself will help in any way our children are under attack and Satan of course wants to destroy them we can't sit back and let Satan steal them away they're meant instead to inflict uh, inflict damage on his kingdom. It's time we changed our view of children and began to see them as God does, as gifts, and also as arrows in the hands of a warrior. Now, finally, from the psalm, we need to know that children raised for God will not lead to shame. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So the text says, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of children. Uh, there's been debate through the years, well, what is a full quiver? Uh, it doesn't mean that everyone should have a large family. I don't believe that that's necessarily the case. Or that if you have more children, you're a better Christian. I don't think that's the case. And it simply means that, that since children are a gift from God, then the more He gives you, the more blessed you will be and the more you ought to give thanks for these blessings. Now, there's nothing wrong with planning the size of one's family. But don't forget it's ultimately up to the Lord to determine the size of your family, the number of children you have. And don't buy into the world's way of thinking that says that the more children you have, the more burdened you are. 
and, and instead realize that God himself says you're blessed if you have any, and even more blessed if you have many. Now, if children, if you have them in their race for the Lord, established on the Word, and they're offered to God daily in prayer, then you will not be ashamed. If you nurture them and, and teach them, uh, you'll find them a great uh, source of blessing. But if you don't do that, you will find uh, we will find their source of shame. Proverbs says, A child left to himself brings shame to his mother, and a foolish son is a grief to his mother. The father of a fool has no joy, and a foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to him who bore him. And of course, all children, no matter how well we try and raise them, will bring some grief, some pain uh, to their parents. They never turn out perfect. And yet, and yet, if we are faithful to our calling, we can expect to be unashamed. Verse 5 says that godly parents will not be ashamed, but rather shall speak with their enemies in the gates. And, and, and in ancient times, the gate was the place where business was conducted, where cases were tried, and godly sons were a great defense and help to their parents. Spurgeon said, Nobody cares to meddle with a man who can gather a clan of brave sons about him. And of course, this verse has greater spiritual applications to the kingdom of God. In Genesis 22, read the account of Abraham when he offered his son Isaac as a sacrifice or was about to do so when the angel uh, stopped him, but God had commanded him to do this. And, and Abraham demonstrated, you see, his ultimate commitment to God. Abraham himself had prayed and God had promised to give him this promised son Isaac. But he didn't worship Isaac. He worshiped God. He was willing to do what God said to do with him. He offered him up to God. And how did God respond? When the angel stayed his hand and kept the knife from coming down on Isaac, then he spoke these words, words of God. He said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing will I bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so the promise is to us too. That covenant promise is to us and to our children today that we would possess the gate of our enemies and that through our descendants who know Jesus Christ, who, who proclaim that gospel, that the earth, the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we should offer our children to the Lord as living sacrifices, offering them to the Lord in prayer, and then they will stand firm on the word. They will defend and proclaim the gospel as they grow up and their children's children. Remember this. Unless the Lord builds your house, my house, we are laboring in vain to no end for no purpose. Is God building your house, your life, your family? Hebrews 3, 4 says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. God is the builder, the only builder of things that last for eternity. Otherwise, we're wasting our time and losing rewards. But if we labor for the Lord, here's the promise. And I'll close with this. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, 
be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, we come now to the Lord's table. Christ himself instituted this ordinance, this sacrament, that we might remember what he has done and build our lives on this sacrifice. I ask the elders if they would please come forward to administer the supper. This is the Lord's table, and this table <clears throat> is both open and it is closed. It is open to all who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, repent of their sins, who are seeking to live a life of obedience to Christ, who seek more grace, who seek God's help in this endeavor to follow Christ. If you're a baptized believer and you're seeking to follow him, then you're welcome to participate. We ask that young children who have not made a profession of faith and met with the elders uh, to not partake at this time. And if you are not yet a believer, there's a prayer for you uh, in the bulletin, something for you to think about and pray if you are ready to receive Christ into your own life. This supper is representative of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so hear the words of the institution that Apostle Paul gave to us. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These elements are common elements. We use them every day in some way, and yet they're now set apart for holy use as we observe the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Father, we ask now for a blessing upon these gifts, these elements, a blessing upon the time of reception that we might acknowledge that you are present, that we might have communion and fellowship with you, knowing, Lord, that you have come to save us. You've come, you have conquered sin and hell and death, and you've been raised from the dead, and now, Lord, you dwell with us by your Spirit. And so feed us with food from heaven. Let us be humble, confessing our sins, but rejoicing in our salvation. And Lord, may we receive worthily these elements as they are passed out today. We thank you, Jesus, for your body and your blood. and In your name we pray. Amen. That night before he was betrayed, the night before he was crucified, he had supper with the disciples and he gave them bread and he broke that bread in their presence and he gave it to each of them and he says, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please take the elements and, and we'll all uh, hold them together 
uh, and, and take them all together at the same time uh, after they've all been handed out. So let us receive the Lord's Supper. Apostle Paul said, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me, said the Lord. After they had eaten, Christ took the cup and he also gave it to his disciples and he gave it to them and he said that the cup would be the new covenant, uh, was representative of the new covenant in his blood. And he told them to drink, to all drink from the cup.
This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, said Christ. Drink you all of it. Let's pray. Lord, your body is real food. Your blood is real drink. As you said in the word, if a man would not eat your flesh and drink of your blood, he would have no life in him. And you meant that, Lord, not of this bread and this cup that we just drank, but of the true spiritual nurture and feeding that comes from heaven and so we thank you lord for this table for this food and i pray god that we would live healthier christian lives as a result of this time and we rejoice oh god we celebrate what you have done for us and we go forth to proclaim it to the world now through christ our lord we pray Amen.